past 7 o'clock, and it's time to start getting excited. We love Monday nights around here because it's time for Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo in a huge show once again tonight. Ira, not in the studio yet, but there's good reason for that because you've been taking in some great NBA playoffs games. Well, I, I was in Brooklyn for the game last Tuesday and went down to Philadelphia and saw the Sixers play Wednesday. I'll do that again this week to go Brooklyn Tuesday, Sixers Wednesday. Uh, for I, I just love the playoffs. I love the excitement, the enthusiasm. Fans are back in the, in the arenas. Just And, uh, and now we're going to have this game five between Brooklyn and Milwaukee, a series that a couple days ago, everyone thought it would be over by now, is now going to a deciding fifth game, and, and having Kevin Durant is going to have to lead the Nets without Harden, without Kyrie, against Giannis and Middleton and Holiday and everyone else for the Bucks. So a big, big game on Tuesday. And tonight's going to two big games. Like, I, I am pumped for these playoffs. I know these games have not been close. A lot of them haven't, but I still love the NBA so much that I get into it every night. Well, even if the games haven't necessarily all been close, the series are close, all with the exception of one. So it's still making it fun uh, to keep up, and I love keeping up with your uh, your antics. So make sure you follow Ira on social media, at Ira on Sports. Get all the uh, inside looks from all these amazing games that he's going to. Ira, speaking of amazing, we had a guest uh, just a few moments ago, pre-taped him uh, earlier today. Fantastic, though. His name is Jake Fisher. Tell us about him. I uh, wrote a book called Built to Lose. He's been a writer for Sports Illustrated, Slam, uh, NBA writer. He's a, he's a young writer. He's like probably under 30, but he's really a great writer, great contacts. And for this book, he interviewed 300 people, very persistent and uh, insight, little stories and tidbits and everything about it. And when it's interesting because he talks about team building. So when you sit there and watch uh, Devin Booker and you watch Donovan Mitchell and you're like, well, where did they get drafted? And these guys weren't the first picks in the draft. Now, what's the Sixers? Those guys were the first picks in the draft. But if you watch these other teams, these players were. Nikolai Jokic for Denver went 41st. And just the thought process and the thinking about how these players get drafted and what happens and, and who got drafted ahead of them. Uh, it, was, it was a great book to read, and I, I'm real excited about this interview. It's so funny going back and looking at drafts, Ira, especially, you know, football so many players. But NBA's not. So when you do see a guy like, um, like Steph Curry fall to eight, and you look at the people before him, you know, four of those guys aren't in the league anymore. So it's really interesting to go back and analyze some of these drafts. And this guy has been doing it, and he's really entrenched in it. And also Seth Curry, I mean, we're going to watch tonight for the Sixers. Seth Curry, to me, is the third most important person on the Sixers, uh, more than Ben Simmons. The key component, Seth Curry, not Steph, Seth, his brother. And he <laughs> wasn't even drafted, undrafted, and, and, and which is amazing to think that he would go 60 players before you pick a player that's making, I think he's making like 15 or $16 million a year now. So uh, it's, yeah, it is very, it's just interesting to see how this, and also the chatter about every draft, like, oh, this, we have to pick this person, we have to pick this person. Look, the LeBron's everybody knew about but when you see the Giannis go 14 and Donovan Mitchell go 13 and you see Joker go 41st and these are all uh first team all NBA players it just shows you that even though that these teams have all these computers and all this analytics they're making mistake after mistake in drafting these players and it'll be interesting to talk to uh, Jake Fisher all about that in about 20 minutes here on I Run Sports so let's get into the NBA Ira like you said I, I think a lot of fans kind of wrote the bucks off after the Nets went up two nothing but here we are. It's all tied up at two games apiece, and you were at game two. Game two, uh, excited to get there. Uh, this is my, this was my second game. I was game one and two. We did our show last time. And this time I had amazing seats. I 
sat the second row right between the benches. You can see me on TV. I was so fortunate to get this, a great ticket. And But being down there, it was just so cool just to, you could really hear, like, Steve Nash was right in front of me. Uh, Mike Budenholzer, the coach for the uh, the Bucks, was standing there. You could hear the play calls and the players and, 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 and movements around. Uh, it was it was just it was cool to be in that 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 situation. I mean, there was also one of the differences when Giannis goes to the line. The league said he can't count to ten anymore. They were having on the scoreboard the first game about up to ten. You're allowed ten seconds to shoot a free throw, and he was taking twelve and thirteen. And the league said you're not allowed to do something like that. And um, there was uh, Bradley Cooper was in the house. It was it was a, like in front you could see in the first row. No Jay Z and no Beyonce. But Milwaukee was down. I mean, this is a game where, where they were even favored in this game, which I couldn't believe. Bucks were down 36-19 in the first. They were down 24 at the halftime and 30 at the end of the third. And with like seven, eight minutes to go, all the reserves were in the game. I mean, Chris Middleton, who I said is the key to this series, he missed his first eight shots. And at that point, he was 6-31 shooting. Uh, and this is, you know, the team had just Kyrie and, and, and Durant. Durant was unstoppable scoring 32 points in 33 minutes. Kyrie had 22 points in 34 minutes. And Blake Griffin, Joe Harris, Bruce Brown, Mike James. It's the same thing that happened in game one, just this total, even more so, but it's a total domination. And it just looked like after that game, this series was over. I mean, it was like at the point where there's no way. I mean, even if you know, who cares if Harden comes back or not comes back, they couldn't. What I was shocked when I was at that game, there was no sense of urgency on the Bucks. Like you're down 22. The way you're playing, like you're not coming. Like you'll be lucky to play the rest of this game. Even you're not coming back from 22 points and beating the Nets. And the Nets looked unbeatable. And this brought, though, I'll tell you one thing. This looked like I think two years ago when Toronto went and it went on to win the title. And so on Milwaukee was up two games to none on Toronto, had won the first two games easily, then went to Toronto for game three, close game, had the game almost won, and then Toronto came back and won that game, won the next three, and ended up winning the NBA Finals, and Milwaukee was like, what happened? We were up 2-0, and we thought it was, so in this case, Milwaukee is, but in the situation, that brought the game three, uh, uh, which was game three, uh, where the Bucks won, and to me, this was probably the defining moment so far of the NBA uh, playoffs. Uh, in terms of the fact that the Bucks went out to a 30 to 11 start, people thought, "Look, you're back at home. You're down 2-0. Giannis was amazing, 15 points. Middleton, 15 points. I mean, it, it seemed like they scored at one point. They had scored 30 points at Middleton, and Giannis had scored all their points. Uh, <laughs> but then at the end, but then with six minutes to go in the game, Durant scored uh, to make it 76-76. And then from 609 to 240, each team in the fourth quarter. I mean, look at these scoring. They only had 76 points in the fourth quarter. They missed 11 shots. Middleton. Then um, scored a basket, take the lead, 78-76, Durant tied. Middleton scored, Durant tied again. It was just back and forth, Durant hitting shot after shot. And then with a minute 23 left, Durant makes one of this amazing 28-foot three-point shot, goes up 83-80. Middleton cut the score to 83-82. What happened? So now there's like a minute to go in the game. You're still up one. You have Kevin Durant. You have Kyrie Irving. Who's going to take the shot? Joe Harris. Joe Harris <laughs> took this running shot. It's like, what is he doing? Like, I told you that the six-foot rule for Joe Harris, if you're six-foot and no one's around you, take the shot. Otherwise, what is he doing taking the shot? Then they come back. They block. Uh, Giannis gets uh, blocked on a shot. 
And then Middleton misses another shot. They come back down there, and Bruce Brown misses a 15-foot pull-up shot. Still no call for Durant. And if I was Durant, I would have said, look, everybody, give me the ball. My whole concern for the the Nets was that Kyrie was going to hug the ball and not give it to Durant. I never thought that Joe Harris and Bruce Brown were going to take the ball. And then the holiday, then the Bucks drove down. The Nets were a mess. They holiday scores to go up by one. They didn't call a timeout, which is smart because the Nets seem confused. They know what they're doing when you get a layup like that. So there's still 10 seconds to go. Nets call a timeout. They're going to run a play. And this has to be in the anal, just one of the worst play calls in the history of the NBA because you have 11 seconds. Throw it to Durant. You're down one. He's hitting every shot you can imagine. Instead, Griffin inbounds the ball. It goes to Kyrie. He throws it to Bruce Brown. And where's Durant? In the corner. Like, that's where the Bucks would want him. And the, why would you have him in the corner? He's, have him holding the ball. And, they, and Brown misses another shot and end up losing the game. But that's a chance where they would have gone up eight. They would have gone up three games to none. They could have been injured or whatever. But that was a chance to, to end the series that night. And I think that was, that was, that's where they lost it. I mean, that was just unbelievable. I, just for the whole week, when I saw it, I, like, I cannot wait to talk about on our air how <laughs> stupid Steve Nash was and how stupid the Nats were on the, one of the worst calls, which is give the ball to Durant, because he's also a 90% foul shooter, and you're down. He's going to go to the line even if he gets fouled. So, Ira, that was uh, Game 3 in Milwaukee. i got to ask you, have you ever been to Five Five Serve Forum where Milwaukee plays? Have you been to a Bucks home game? No, that's one of I've been I've been missing five arenas, and uh, that's one of the arenas I missed, and it's uh, so I missed that in terms of going there. I know that there was a, after the last game there was a fire alarm there, that's why they didn't have interviews afterwards. But uh, no, I was I've never been there. But it, it's like one of those. It, look, if the Bucks make the finals, I, I can't wait to go there. I was just going to say, if the Bucks go to the finals, you, you have to check uh, one more off the list. So let's go to Game Four. Game Three was really close. Game Four, you started looking at it like, man, maybe the Bucks can turn this around and win this series. Well, it all changed. It was it was close, and it all changed with 11 minutes to go. He had 11 points midway through the second quarter, and Kyrie goes up for a shot. He lands on Giannis's leg, and I. It's like one of the things where you watch a game and then you hear later like what people thought is like, well, why was Giannis's foot there? And he should have let Kyrie, Kyrie was shooting like a layup. Like you don't. It's not a three point shot. I mean, it, when you're he, Giannis is getting a rebound, like he landed on someone's feet. This happens in the NBA all the time. Now, what I predicted on the show, I said, I said, I said, there's going to be a game where there'll be no Durant, no Kyrie, and no Harden. Now we're down two out of three because of their injuries. Kyrie has been injury prone for the last three, four, last five years. He's one of those injury prone players. So I, it, it, I'm amazed he lasted this long, and I'm amazed, not amazed that Harden's out. And 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 I hate to say it, but I think Durant will get hurt trying to play these extra minutes that he is. But once he went down, and then you just saw Durant then try to take, you know, force the shots, do more, and Giannis started dominating. 34 points um, and 12 rebounds. Holiday had 14 points. Middleton had 19 points. And it was just the point where I think that the, the, the Nets were deflated when they saw Kyrie. He left on crutches. His foot's in a boot, sprained ankle. you got to assume he's going to be out at least a couple weeks. Uh, with an injury like that, and Harden with the hamstring, and hamstrings don't take the time to come back. He came back and got hurt. He's, he's been trying. He's been dealing with this hamstring. Harden has for the last like six to eight weeks. So it's it's not certain that even if he comes back and plays in a game, he's going to be able to to last more than a than a, you know, like a quarter or so. So it's going to come down to Durant. But that's why this game on Tuesday. I mean, this is a chance. I mean, now Durant he came to the Nets because I got Kyrie, and then they're going to bring other players. But now you see Blake Griffin not playing so well. All these other role players they look great when they're winning by 30 and you have Kyrie and Durant. Now it's just going to be on Durant. 
a lot of pressure, and it's also, but if you want to be known as the top 10 player in the world, you've got to win games like this. And, and I think this will be interesting to see what happens and, and how he responds because you saw Kevin Durant when he, when he was at Oklahoma City. They could not make it. They made it to the finals in that one year when he had a heart in the Westbrook, never made it back to the finals, went to the Golden State Warriors, and then won two championships there. But uh, this, is a, this is another challenge in terms of it's 2-2, and he's going to have to be Milwaukee. Now, on the other hand, not so in Milwaukee. I mean, they, Giannis is shooting below 50% from the foul line. They make a lot of mistakes. I think they play stupid. Um, so I, I think I think I, I had, I'm not sure. I can't call this game. I literally cannot call because on one hand, I think Durant is unstoppable. On the other hand, I'm concerned also about Milwaukee. I'm just not sold to them. Even though they how those first two games, they almost seem to give up against the Nets. And I just think that could happen again, even though they look dominating against the Heat. It should be uh, interesting to see how it plays out, and we'll, of course, keep you updated here on Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. About 10 minutes, we'll get to an excellent author, Jake Fisher, uh, right here on Iron Sports. So second game you went to last week, Philly and, and Atlanta, by the way, going to tip off uh, any minute here. That series is 2-1 to one in favor of Philly right now, but you got to be at game two, I. Well, that was the you know game, again, they lost game one, come back Philadelphia, and, and what an atmosphere. Now, Brooklyn had a good atmosphere. Philly was just packed, people going crazy. I got down there early, and there's a thing called Xfinity Live outside the stadium that has uh, bars in there. It was packed. And the one thing about Sixer fans, and, and you go to games, like I know hockey fans, they all wear the hockey jerseys. Basketball fans, like, you get to eat games. You, don't, you see little kids wear jerseys. You don't see a lot of adults wearing, like, heat jerseys. Now, I've always been called. For the Sixer fans, first of all, they have one color scheme. It's the red, white, and blue, and they wear that. And then all the fans wear these jerseys. Like like men who are like 80 years old are wearing the jerseys. So <laughs> they all have the jerseys, and it's the enthusiasm that was there. And then before the game starts, they uh, have a Liberty Bell on, brought on the, the court, and Julius Irving rings it. I like that. That's pretty cool to have that type of uh, thing there. And uh, But it was it was like it, – it's I've been to that arena, uh, the Wells Fargo Center, a number of times, and uh, – it's like Staples. It's a big arena. It's not the intimate one. I mean, Brooklyn is much smaller. Brooklyn feels smaller. When you're at the Wells Fargo Arena, it feels like the Staples Center in L.A. It just feels like I don't like those centers as much. I like the smaller ones, but it was really, really, really loud. And But the one takeaway from the game that, that I saw is, that first of all, Embiid was tremendous. Uh, his ability to shoot from all areas of the court, handle the ball, it just, there was no answer. The Hawks had no answer for him, but Ben Simmons was terrible. Uh, ben Simmons is owed four years, $180 million. Uh, he was embarrassed. It was, it was almost embarrassing. He played 35 minutes. He was two for three shooting, 0 for two for the line, four points, three rebounds, seven assists. I mean, this guy for making going to make $180 million. He didn't want the ball because he didn't want to shoot a foul shot. So he, and they're like, oh, he played great defense on Trey Young. I don't know. I mean, you can put it, you're not paying someone $180 million to play great defense. It's, it seems he's terrible. It, it, like the, seeing Simmons up close like this and watching this game and seeing how he just does not want to touch the ball, does not want to take over the ball. And it, and, and the game turned when Shake Milton came in. So Simmons is on the bench in the second half. Shake Milton came in and scored at one point, uh, I think six points. They went on a 14 nothing run at the, at the end of the third, the beginning of the fourth. And he's a better player and he's earned I think the NBA minimum coming into that game, but uh, Embiid had 35 minutes, had 40 points, 13 boards, and uh, there was one moment in the game that he got in a fight with uh, Gallinari for the Hawks, 
and they went back and forth, and Embiid went and shoved him when Gallinari was not facing him, just like shoved him while the refs were out there. And you saw what happened to Jokic last night for Denver. I thought there was a point where, now he got called for a flagrant on that, but he could have been a flagrant too and thrown out of the game. So I was a little surprised that, that you know, that it could have gone either way because it, it was a hard shove. No, it wasn't a hit. But uh, Tobias Harris played great for the Sixers at 22 points, and, and, uh, and Seth Curry had 21. And that's, I think, the difference. In terms of, they, they ended up blowing out the game in the, in the fourth quarter and just taking that lead. But it was great to be in that environment. And then, then, they, then the Sixers go down to Atlanta, uh, and easily, <laughs> Simmons finally has a better game. And they easily won by 127-111. So they're up two games to one. Uh, but uh, they got uh, contributions from the bench that uh, Court Moss, uh, and Shake Milton played well again, and Bede played fantastic, and Simmons played better. Trey Young's just not, it just seems like those last two games, he just has not played like he did against the Knicks. Um, they're not getting the other shooter, they're not shooting the threes. I mean, they're having trouble shooting threes and making the threes. Hawks can't shoot the threes, they're not gonna, they're not gonna stay in there. I mean, they were six from 23 from the three point line, and they're one of the best three point shooters in the entire team and in the entire league. But so now they're down 2 1, and then they're gonna come back tonight. You'll see in a few minutes, you'll see if the Hawks in Atlanta can tie the series 2 2. Also tonight, Ira, going out to the West Coast. It's going to be 10 o'clock start, Utah and the Clippers. A lot of people still have the Clippers favored to come out of the West. And I don't know if I can buy into that. The series, though, is 2-1. to one. Well, I mean, the Clippers, the last series against Dallas fell down back two games to none. And that's what happened here. Utah, the fans, 18,300 fans are going crazy. Donovan Mitchell is showing everyone, if you haven't watched him in the first game, he was 16 for 30, 7 or 8 from threes, uh, 45 points. He had 32 points in the second half. Uh, Bogdanovich and Clarkson are others. Everyone on the team shoots threes. And you have Rudy Gobert who's in the center, who's the one, the defensive player of the year, tremendous player. And, and it's just like the Clippers just couldn't, and this game was close. They stayed in there, but it, Leonard scored 23, but Paul George, another terrible game, four for 17, 20 points. It was just one of those things where they just it, it were, it, look, it was 112-109, but at the end of the game, the Clippers had a chance to score and just, just took terrible shots, and that led into game two, uh, which was which the Utah won more handily. Now, again, they have no Mike Conley, which is their point guard, so they haven't had him for two games. They're going to have three games, really, and we don't know what his status is for the rest of the series, but again, Donovan Mitchell, 37 points, 27 points in the first half. Uh, the Clippers took a lead by two. And then the Jazz, when the Jazz start to score, they just start shooting three after three after three, went on a 14-2 run and uh, shot again. 20, 20 threes in a game, 20 out of 39 for a dominating, uh, for a win there. They won by six, but it game wasn't as close. But boy, then you come to game three, uh, the Clippers... <laughs> I think they like getting these two holes because uh, last, you know, two nights ago they were down. Uh, uh, they came back and, and they won one thirty. They won by twenty six points. Uh, it wasn't even close. I mean, the, after the Jazz took an early lead, the Clippers just went and dominated. And then Mitchell, um, his ankle bothered him at the end, and, and the reserves were in the game with eight minutes to go. And Kawhi was in Paul. Kawhi had thirty four points. Uh, Paul George had thirty one points. Rich Jackson played great. Uh, and the Clippers. When the Clippers shoot great, I mean, they shot 56% from the field, 52% from three, 80% of foul line. They look great. I mean, the Clippers, when the Clippers are playing well, they look really, really good. I don't know. I still like the Jazz. I love the Jazz, and I think the Jazz are going to win this series. I think they're going to win this next game tonight um, and, uh, and then win it in five. But, uh, uh, but the Clippers, uh, that, was a, that, that was a win, of course, they needed. They couldn't go down 3 nothing. 
Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Uh, author Jake Fisher joins us in just about five minutes. It's going to be a great interview. So, Ira, I don't <laughs> – I was never picking a, a shutout in the second round of any playoffs. And I know that the Suns are good, and I know that they played excellent against the Lakers, but I didn't see them sweeping Denver, and that's exactly what we got. Well, first of all, when you watch Denver play, they lost Jamal Murray, their star point guard. So he's hurt. And Jokic is the MVP. And you're seeing, I just you wonder, how did Portland lose this team? Like, Portland should have won the series over, over. They lost in six, but they should have, they, Portland should have beat Denver. Because Denver came in there and they got literally blown out every single game. They lost by 17 one game. They lost by 25 the second game. They, then they end up losing by 14 the other game. And then last night, they only lost by seven. It was a little closer. But the key thing was on, it, it's just what is happening is Chris Paul is playing the best. Again, we're seeing in sports from the Nicholsons to the Djokovics is everyone. The best ten, the best play. Chris Paul was unstoppable in that uh, third or fourth quarter. I mean, he ended he had 18 points. He ended up with 37 for the game. Devin Booker, the other star guard for Phoenix, has just been dominating. He had 34 points, and you're seeing these two guard tandems in some of these teams, and, and they seem like like Middleton and Giannis, just two player tandems dominating the scoring. But uh, it, it's like Aiton was able to shut. Aiton was not able to shut down Jokic, but he was able to do enough. To that Jokic had to work in terms of, of scoring and, and couldn't really dominate. And Bridges is, there, is played very good. And Jay Crowder, remember Jay Crowder from the Heat? It seems like wherever Jay Crowder's on, he's winning because he looked fantastic for the Suns. He plays a lot of minutes, plays great defense, shoots well from the three, and, and then they have some good, they have good work from the bench coming in there. Uh, but it was like, and Booker is a superstar. But it was like one of these things where, you know, now that they made the Western Conference Finals the first time since 2009, 2010, when Steve Nash was there, um, and, 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 and Jokic, I mean, he played well. He had, he had a, with a, in game three, he had 32 points, 20 boards, and 10 assists. Only Kareem and Wilt had ever had a 30-20-10 line. Uh, and the coach yelled at Mike Malone of Denver, was like, we're not trying, we're not hustling, but I'm not going to blame Jokic on that. But, look, no one else stepped up. Michael Porter Jr. didn't step up. The other players didn't step up. The injuries without Jamal Murray really hurt Denver. But I think the key to this series was winning in four. As Chris Paul is 34 years old, he's had shoulder injuries, uh, shoulder problems, and now that they have a whole week off, they can rest. If Utah takes this to maybe Wednesday or whatever into another, another maybe even Friday or Sunday, that's going to tire Utah out, and it's going to let the Suns rest, and everyone else is playing, and that's what the Suns need. Look, the younger players don't need to rest. The Bridges, the Crowders, and the Bookers, I mean, the Bridges and the Aiton and, uh, and Booker don't need rest. But for Chris Paul, who's the engine that drives his team, that was important. And I just, I, I still think the Jazz will beat the Jazz will come out of the West. But this extra week is could be the difference in giving the Suns that break. And and how many times you see teams with those three zero leads that oh they'll lose a game? But no, Suns needed the break. They won that game. And uh, the whole question when Game Four was when they threw Jokic out of the game. Was there a need when he had a hard foul on Cameron Payne? I don't know. I, I, it's like one of those things you throw the MVP. It was a hard foul, but they haven't been throwing players out. I don't think it justified. It was close, 
I would say it wasn't impossible to see it, but I don't think they should have thrown Joku out of a game for a foul like that because I've seen fouls like that. I mean, certainly five years ago, they never would have thrown out. But even Joku has never been thrown out of a game in his life, and I think to throw him out of the game on a hard foul was uh, was excessive. Well, it's, it's interesting, you know, just a side note before we get to Jake Fisher. You know, you talk about DeAndre Ayton, and like we're going to talk in a minute, he's going to be a guy, Ira, for the rest of his career is constantly looked at because of Luka Doncic, you know, he's going to be an, an all-star candidate for the next decade, and he went two picks later. So it's it's interesting how that all shakes up, but I'm glad to see Ayton's really catching on because I was starting to get a little worried about him after last year. Well, I think what's the most amazing thing is that two years ago, the uh, um, two years ago, Phoenix was 19. I mean, this isn't four years ago. Two years ago, they were 19 and yeah. 53, and they had Devin Booker and Aiton on the team. They went 1963. They bring in Monte Williams. They bring in Chris Paul. They bring in Jay Crowder. They have uh, and they develop, and that's what's amazing. It's like they, they develop Booker. Booker started playing better. They had they they were in the bubble last year, and they won eight games. They and, and they didn't make the playoffs, but they had those games where they that helped for team building. But between Monte Williams and uh, and, uh, and 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 Booker and you know just the development. That's what's so amazing. This team won. This team won nineteen games. Uh, uh, the two years ago, and now they're in uh, they're, they're the Western Conference Finals. This is Iron Sports, 95.9, 106.9 West Palm Beach. We're uh, very fortunate to have noted author Jake Fisher on, who just wrote a book called Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Air Changed the League Forever. Jake, thanks for coming on the show, right in the heart of the NBA playoffs, to talk about some NBA basketball. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. I'm excited. So you wrote this book, Built to Lose, and I think there's a lot of people when they hear the word tanking, they don't really understand what tanking means. And you went through the book explaining it, but maybe give you a short little definition of what a tanking actually means in the NBA concept. I think in the NBA, I think it's reflective in the title, right? Built to Lose. Tanking is when front office executives and ownership groups and management all together kind of conspire to put out a roster full of young players that may have potential um, but ultimately lack the talent to win games in the interim. And therefore, you know, it's pretty designed for those teams to fall down the standings, get a pretty poor record, which will in turn give them higher chances at uh, the annual lottery to get a top five pick where they could draft a potential superstar that could take them into a winning future. And is, has tanking gone on? Like, why does it appear that it seems like, six or seven teams tank now, whereas it, it didn't, when I mean, I've been a fan of the NBA for years, I didn't, you didn't feel like a few teams were tanking 10, 15 years ago, but maybe they were and I didn't notice it. No, it, it, the t- tanking has been around in the league as long as anything, but you're right. It's become more of a mainstream trend. And I think it's a direct uh, result of these analytical minded executives. You know, Sam Hinkie is the, the poster child, but you know, the, the book covers this whole period where Rob Hennigan gets elevated um, to become the general manager in Orlando, and Ryan McDonough takes over in Phoenix, and you have Pete D'Alessandro in Sacramento and David Griffin in Cleveland. All these analytical mind executives really realize that throughout the history of the league to compete for championships, those those championship teams, they all have multiple all-stars, and the most direct route to get them, if you're not L.A. or New York, it's through the draft, and that's why we're seeing you know the strategy become more and more mainstream today. And you mentioned in your book, you went through detail and you had long uh, interviews with 
all these analytical people in terms of the new analytical general manager, as opposed to there's still the player general manager, the players like the mm-hmm. Joe Dumars, Isaiah Thomas. There is that change now. You mentioned, I think, what five GMs that that never even said, you know, they never played in the NBA, and suddenly they're making all the judgments and all the calls in terms of the NBA, and, that, and that's sort of some friction on some teams because you have the players and coaches, and then these GMs that have never played the game, and, and that's where the friction comes a lot of times. And you set through that really good in the book. For sure. Thank you. Yeah. I talked to over 300 people. That's kind of my big selling pitch, you know, players, agents, coaches, executives, other ancillary type, you know, personnel around the league for this book to, to find a bunch of original details from transactional stuff to locker room infighting to draft night rumors and all that type of great details that you know, NBA Twitter loves these days. But you're right. I think even through today, I, I think the, the tug and pull of how valuable analytics are and how um, much of a say and an impact they need to have on a coaching staff and actual um, exploitation and and, and implementation into their playing style. It's a real friction point for franchises all around the league today, especially, I mean, it wasn't just in the late 2010s and the beginning of of last decade. It's, it's really still prevalent throughout all these teams and these front office structures. And what I loved reading about your book is you went into detail on these drafts and what, what the people thought at the time and also how the team buildings, you went through 13, 14, and 15, really those, those years about yes. what they were thinking about. And it's like people were like, oh, we have to draft uh, uh, Oladipo or, or Anthony Bennett, number one. And then you look at the draft and, and you're looking at the draft and Giannis, was an afterthought at 15th. And you look at the all-stars of the league, and the C.J. McCollum drafted at 10th, and, and poor Lennon people were thinking, ah, so what? We got Everyone was excited. That's why we, I think, after a draft with the NFL and, at, and with the NBA, to say that someone's a winner and loser is totally ridiculous because you can't really judge a draft until you know later. I mean, you, you bring the 2014 draft, and you have uh, Clint Capella went 25. Joe Harrison, well, actually not played well for the Nets. He went 33. And then the MVP of the league, uh, Nikolai Jokov at Denver, went 41st in the draft. And that means 40 other players. And there's like Noah Gonley from Charlotte. And, and uh, those players all went ahead of Napier. We, Napier, we saw, went to the Heat, who are, are in the league right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the the book uses the draft in 2013 and 2014 and 2015 to be like a vehicle, uh, like as a, a structure standpoint, to kind of bring full glimpses inside these war rooms. And I think the draft is so fascinating being that the whole year comes down to that one night where you're sending scouts all over the world to scout college players, international players, and you bring these guys in for workouts. And then you're also, you know, that the draft also opens up trade opportunities for the entire league. The league calendar is going and flying and there's trades being discussed and for agencies the next week. And at the end of the day, these decisions, when you come on the clock at number one or number 10 or whatever, you only have five minutes to really finalize a decision that could ultimately decide the fate of an entire franchise and more directly, more linearly, the fate of that executive and the coaching staff and, and their ultimate success and whether or not they're going to be able to keep convincing their ownership group to empower them and employ them to lead this team to victory. So I, I think all that pressure, all those conflicting agendas from the player agents to the execs to the coaches all at once right when a team's on the clock, it's just fascinating drama. 
And then you go into detail about the foreign players, and we're seeing in the playoffs with Giannis and Luka Doncic and, and all the and Jokic and all these foreign stars. But it seems like that's where the NBA. I mean, they're making mistakes everywhere on these teams, and that's what I was surprised about. You know, you have all these analytics and all these people that work there, and everyone crunching numbers, and they're still drafting Jokic 41st and Giannis 14th. But it seems like on the foreign players, that's where they're making a lot of errors. So you mentioned in your book, Josh Harris is now. I don't know how old young his son was on that, but it, it seemed <laughs> like he was a very young. He was when they were drafting Michael Carter. Carter Williams, he was saying, I love Rudy Gobert, and yeah. he's screaming, and everyone was laughing at him, laughing at him for saying that, this little kid, what does he know, and now Rudy Gobert is three-time defensive player for Utah, uh, exactly. you see him in the playoffs. Yeah, and Giannis is a great detail in that 2013 draft, being that a lot of teams had access to his video footage, as, as it's pretty well known now, but very few teams knew what to make of it. It was grainy, and he was playing against all these smaller kids, and the Atlanta Hawks were one team that really wanted Giannis. They had the 17th and 18th pick in that draft, but they knew that they had to trade up in order to get him because they had a pretty big suspicion that the Milwaukee Bucks wanted him at a 15. And the Hawks were the only team to bring him in for a, a workout. They brought him into Atlanta under cloak and dagger. The GM at the time, Danny Ferry, hosted him in, in his house. He had dinner at his kitchen table with Danny Ferry's kids and his wife and Giannis' brother, Thanasis. But the Mavericks just... Again, all, all these things happening at the draft. The Magic were concerned for the 2014 free agency a whole year later. They didn't want to take Atlanta's two first-round picks, 17 and 18, onto their salary cap books because they wanted a free salary to go chase LeBron and all those other guys in free agency in 2014. So the Mavericks traded the 13th pick away to Boston where the Celtics took Kelly Olenek, and the Hawks are sitting there heartbroken as the Bucks take Giannis at number 15. So those types of close calls, especially with international prospects on draft night, they can be really gut-wrenching for a franchise too. We're talking to Jake Fisher, author of Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Air Changed the League Forever. Uh, they, you can get this on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and anything online that's around the stores even, which are open now. It's a great book about the NBA. Um, you go through in detail, and, and this is something as someone who follows the NBA, you hear, oh, this team had a player in for a workout. You all hear about the workouts. And mm-hmm. you, you talk in the book how, like, Dante Exum came, I guess, for the Sixers for a workout, and he went against a, a player, Tim Frazier, and Frazier outplayed him. And so now agents are manipulating the workouts, like who they're working out against because they don't want them to look bad. And then these teams are making these major decisions based upon one-on-one playing, which, of course, the NBA is five-on-five and not one-on-one. It seems so much emphasis on these workouts. Yeah, the workouts have been super important for a long time, and it's really interesting how the best agents can do super creative things to try to manipulate to get their player to where they want them to go. I mean, something as simple as, I found out, I think it's an original detail from the book, it's that Devin Booker in 2015, the Utah Jazz really wanted him, and they wanted to bring him in. They wanted to take him number 12, but Booker refused to go to the Jazz, and that's why that's part of why he ended up being clear to go fall to Phoenix number 13. And you look at the, the Dante Exum situation, like Philly had a lot of pressure to take Dante Exum, being that his father, Cecil, had played um, for Brett Brown in Australia, and, and that, that connection was pretty strong. And, um, I mean, Joel Embiid, is, as, as everything he has become, you know, all that aside, he had injury concerns and had already taken Nerlens Noel the year before. There was a lot of 
thought that Dante was the pick, but he hadn't played in like a year, and they hadn't seen him play against anybody who wasn't older than people in the FIBA 19 tournament. So they gave Rob Polinka, Axum's agent at the time, a list of players that Philly had already worked out previously to be like a barometer. And yeah, it's really rare for these top prospects to work out against anybody. Usually they go one on zero against the chair or against six or four <laughs> teams, assistant coaches and whatnot. But Polinka said yes. They thought he'd be able to do well against Tim Frazier, this little pesky small six foot senior guard who was supposed to go undrafted and did. And when it, when when that type of player goes against a top five pick, it's an expectation that's going to be a blowout. And it was, but like you said, Tim Frazier just dominated Dante Exum. And and from what I was told from people with the team, that 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 workout you know ruled out Dante at number three and really cemented the fact that Philly was going to take Joel Embiid. And then you go into detail about and we about how teams move salaries around and, and you talked about LeBron being courted by the Cavaliers when he was from at with the Heat and how yeah. LeBron said I'm going to get a max contract and they'll say well you sign with us and then we'll move contracts he goes no you move the contracts first and then I'll sign and the Heat still thought LeBron might come back so they drafted a uh, the Connecticut player that he thought would be great in the draft and they moved up and everybody's making these moves to get LeBron and they're signing people. And, and you mentioned in the book how people like sign people that they think know their personal trainer. All, yeah. it, it, it is a much like college recruiting now, but also with the salary cap, trying to make these moves to get the, the team. And I sort of let it lead, talk a little bit about uh, the LeBron recruitment and, and because we're down here in West Palm Beach and with Miami yeah. and, and how that played into it. I mean, as that Heat series came to a close in the fifth and the 14th finals, I mean, there was definitely starting to be expectations that LeBron was looking elsewhere. And I think the fact that he went to LA pretty, you know, steadfastly, I think in 2018, signals that he really had an interest in the Lakers dating all the way back to 2014. And the Lakers are trying to do everything they could to bring LeBron and Carmelo together to form a big three with Kobe. But they unfortunately shot themselves in the foot by signing Kobe to this big, you know, two-year, $48.5 million extension that November, which prevented them to have the space to have two max cap spots. And like you said, when LeBron and agents are hosting people in Akron, they told all these teams, you know, we need to have a max cap space. And they weren't taking discounts to go join Kobe in L.A. So that immediately ruled that out. And the Cavs, interestingly enough, you know, they had the number one pick that whole time. And how can you not factor in the potential of LeBron James choosing to play for you when you're picking number one, being that, that free agency starts a couple of days after your draft slot? So Kevin Love, of course, requests a trade from Minnesota right around that same time. And Cavs officials led by David Griffin were clearly in contact with Flip Saunders, who was running the Timberwolves. And they knew the second Joel Embiid broke his foot. I mean, the Cavs officials say Joel Embiid broke his foot in his Cavs workout, we want to talk about the importance of, Cavs, uh, of draft workouts. They knew that they couldn't take Embiid anymore. And the pick at number one was probably going to be someone that they needed to use to leverage in Minnesota trade talks with Kevin Love. And I really do think that's a major component as to why Cleveland took Andrew Wiggins, to use him as bait to get Kevin Love. That would ultimately help LeBron you know, re-sign with Cleveland and do what he did, ultimately winning a title with them in 2016. Yeah, and then there are some teams, and we're, we're down in Miami, Pat Riley, no, no tanking. The Lakers, yes. we're, we're not tanking. We have Kobe, we're re-signing. I mean, there was, there was, a, there was a, some teams that just do not have this philosophy is that we're just going to put a bunch of young players out here. I mean, Miami, it seems like they kept doubling down. Even when Chris Bosh had, had the heart ailment, yes. they, they still, you know, they had brought in Drogic, and they still made moves, and they, then, they, then they signed the Jimmy Butler. So there is those teams – 
that it seemed like perpetually tanking. Like Orlando is right. It seems like they're tanking every year, where it yes. seems like Miami is just trying to, to, to win every year. Well, one thing you just touched, the Lakers and Miami are the Lakers and Miami, right? A lot of teams like Orlando and OKC and Detroit, they don't have the option of we're going were the most poorly managed team from 2012 to 2017. They had the worst record in the league, worse than San Hankey's Sixers, worse than those tanking Magic, worse than the rebuilding Celtics. And it didn't matter. In 2018, LeBron still just decided to join them, and Anthony Davis wants to request a trade, and they win the title in 2020. Miami, you know, it, it, it was some pretty brilliant cap maneuvering to get Jimmy Butler, but they signed Jimmy Butler in free agency partially because they're Miami. The other teams in this league, they don't have that big of a margin for error. The Sacramentos and the Phoenixes and the Minnesotas and the Milwaukees, they need to nail the draft because they're not going to really attract the the, the, the eyes of free agents unless they have an all-star already in place. And the most direct route to getting them is to the top of the draft. And And the most easy way to get to the top of the draft is by tanking. And then you mentioned in the book, I mean, you go through all these general managers, and the Sam Hickey is the poster child, as you mentioned, for, for this, but they don't survive. Like, because yes. you're drafting, first of all, you're taking risks. Hickey was like, said, I'm going to make mistakes, so I'm going to have like eight first round draft picks, and then I'm going to get Simmons and Embiid, and everyone else is going to, that type of thing. And, and it seems like they, they, they keep wanting to tanking, but none, there's, even with, you think, Brad Stevens and Danny Ainge, you think they would, and they didn't even last. I mean, uh, Stevens had to leave, and uh, actually didn't have to, but moved up to the general manager, <laughs> and Ainge left. It's just so difficult for some of these I, it's, 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 I wouldn't say difficult. It's almost impossible to tank and then still stay on and, and to, to see the to see your team through to the championship. Yeah, I, I think you know, and, and Sam's situation in particular, but everybody, you, know, you only have so long where you can convince an owner that you're the guy to run his team. And if if you're selling a strategy, flip a switch and say, you know what, you're no longer my guy here. And I think one aspect of tanking that doesn't really get highlighted that. I, I tried to in my book is that, you know, getting these guys is just half the battle. And from there, it's so hard to build a sustainable, successful and bringing that whole group forward. And then, you know, getting to the playoffs is one thing, actually bringing yourself to that top echelon of teams and, and being in that title conversation is a whole nother. And it's just that type of, you know, we're just going to tank and get these guys and then we're going to be back there and, and we'll be there and we'll be winning a title pretty soon. It doesn't work that way. And, I mean, Philly, they pushed out Sam. They bring in Brian Colangelo. That whole thing was was a disaster. Elton Brand takes over and he, you know, say what you will, you know, obviously it, he didn't push that team to the next level too. Finally, it's, it's been five years since Sam Hinkie got pushed out in Philly that the Sixers are now the number one seed in the East. It takes a lot of difficult cat maneuvering and luck and good strategy to ultimately turn those draft picks into something that actually is worthwhile on the court. And what about, and then you have a situation like the Nets, who now on one hand, they a couple of years ago in order to get Irving and Durant and then to trade for Harden. So in some, and in essence, they did, I would say, tank. And also you talk about in the book about how teams are signing players like Durant who were injured, who weren't going to play the entire year or draft foreign players that aren't going to play in order to then have trade chips to, to trade. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think it's a direct side effect again to these analytical mind executives coming to power and looking at, you know, every single aspect of team building, 
as something to be in their war chest, whether it be cap space to use to bring on a bloated contract to save another team from cap, you know, uh, inability and, and get a draft asset in return or to draft a player in the second round in Europe who you think you, know, you don't want to pay him right now necessarily, but you also can have him develop on another team's dime and you can use his roster spot that you could have used for him in, in your domestic you know, situation here in, in America and you can give it to another player who might need more development time because they're not as good or they're a little bit more raw. There's definitely, you know, been more and more creative um, team building strategies that we've seen over the last couple of years. And I think it's um, all boiled down to the situation where we have in the NBA, where the league is now an arms race and it's all about chasing as many stars as you can and compiling these loaded rosters. And we see that in the playoffs, all these teams that are left right now, they all have multiple all-stars leading this thing off, and I think that's what we're going to see more and more as the league continues to evolve. Well, we've been talking to Jake Fisher, author of Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Air Changed the League Forever. The book just came out uh, this month, and uh, Jake, thanks a lot, and enjoy the, the playoffs. I mean, this is one of the funnest times of the year to watch every night you know, these great games, so uh, I appreciate you, and I suggest everybody go out and get a book if your address is in the NBA. Thank you. I appreciate the time, and I appreciate you saying those kind of words. Thank you so much. Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel, I'm Mike Balsamo. That was great stuff from Jake Fisher. Really uh, interesting interesting takes on this, and I love to see uh, people putting a lot of effort into stuff like this because it's kind of an obscure topic, but it totally affects the league. Let's talk some hockey real quick, Ira. And the series are set to see who's going to go to the Stanley Cup. We're going to see Vegas and Montreal face off a little bit later tonight to decide who's going to take down game one in that western side. The Islanders advanced past the Bruins, which a lot of people did not see coming, myself being one of them. And Ira, this game's already won in the books. And what do you know? The Islanders beat Tampa to take a one nothing lead. And it's like deja vu with these teams that play the Islanders. Well, it seems like, look, I'm reading everything. I'm in New York, and you're reading everything about this, and you're hearing what Tampa's saying. And they're like, well, we weren't expecting anything. We overlooked the Islanders. Like, like you're in the fight. Like, how can you keep <laughs> overlooking this team? Like, I, what are the Islanders doing? Are they, like, cloaked in a, in a cloaking device? Like, why? Like, it's amazing that everyone is not taking them seriously. They just keep winning. Now, I know they finished 12 in points. Um, it is interesting that Vegas finished first in points, Montreal 18th. Islanders 12th and Tampa 7th. The teams like Colorado, Carolina, Florida, Pittsburgh, Toronto, Washington, all finished two through seven. They're not. They're not in the play. They're still in the playoffs. But I, I look. You got to think Tampa's going to win this series. But you can't just. You got to start saying we're taking them seriously. When are people going to take the Islanders? Like they could win this the, the whole series. No, it, it's crazy, and and it's. The reason they get overlooked is because they don't have superstars. Matthew Barzell is a superstar, but after that, most people couldn't name an Islander. And they play a very slow and, for lack of a better word, boring style of offense. good friend of mine who knows hockey inside and out, he said, their strategy is to bore these teams to death, and they just quit. They don't even want to play the Islanders anymore. And, I mean, when you're watching it on TV, it's really not a wrong statement, but at the end of the day... Whoever comes out with the most goals is going to win. And anytime you, it was basically a shutout. It was two nothing up until you know the Lightning had to score and put all the pressure on. But congratulations to the Islanders. And I'm I've been on this show saying they're going to lose for what four years now, and they keep proving me wrong. So good for them. And uh, I hope that uh, this series does get at least back to level. Let T- Toronto or Tampa show off a little bit of those skills that they have because they are a very talented team. Let's go to the NCAA, Ira, and I. I think a lot of people have been wanting an expansion of the playoffs for a long time. I didn't think it was going to happen, and especially basically overnight, which is how this went down. 
I mean, this is a shock. I mean, this is something that I'm you know, 50 years old and people have been talking about this seems like forever. And, and as someone who supported, you know, a big fan of Penn State, we're independent. How many times did Penn State not get in the bowls? I mean, the history of this is, is crazy that from 90 to, it used to be the Big Ten would go to the Rose Bowl and the SEC would go to the Sugar Bowl and the Big 12 would go to the Orange Bowl. And then at the end, someone would win and there was co-champions. But since like 68, like there was from 68 to 92, they, the top two teams never even played. And so finally, after two consecutive seasons of split national championships, they said by 92, let's, let's have some sort of, of thing. But the Big Ten and the Pac-10 wouldn't be involved in it because they said, we got to be in the Rose Bowl, got to be in the Rose Bowl. So that's why Penn State played Oregon. It's one of the greatest Penn State teams uh, that Kerry Collins and Kadonna Carter. I love that team. And they had to play Oregon in the Rose Bowl, went, went undefeated, and then Nebraska beat Miami, and they went undefeated, and they gave the title to Nebraska. So that was 92-94, same type of thing called a bowl alliance. Then finally in 98 to 2013, they had BCS, which then would be set the bowl games, and then after it, they play a championship game. So they sort of got like one, two after that, but then there was issues about how you play in the bowl games, is it fair, and, and who, what happens with that. And then for since 2014, we've had the four-team playoff. So you've had the four-team playoffs. And then, but it seems like people are saying, like, why is there a change now? Why is suddenly from a, they, they didn't even want to have a one game playoff, suddenly, <laughs> if, you know, to go now to, now they're saying 12 teams, which would mean that they would take 12 teams, the top 12, not by conference. So even if you won your conference, it would not be guaranteed in. But then the top four conference champions, this was, it seems weird, though, would get in, would be at a bye. The uh, next um, eight would have to then play at the um, team's home team stadiums, and then the winners then would go advance to the next round, and then the next round using the Bulls that way. So I know it's a little confusing, but everything about the Bulls system is confusing. But like, what happened? And I think the reason is that in the last three years, the Big Ten, Jim Delaney was the person at the Big Ten who said uh, he just wanted the Rose Bowl. The Rose Bowl was everything. Rose Bowl, Rose Bowl, Rose Bowl. Stopped every type of movement. Well, he retired. Kevin Warner, Warren came in. The ACC, um, Jim Swafford uh, resigned. Jim Sankey came in. And then in the Pac-10, they also had a change of, uh, of uh, conference commission. These are conference commissioners who control a lot of this. And I think that's one of the pushes that, that uh, and maybe some TV money too, and how they're going to get this done. But to open it, to go from 4 to 12, I mean, People thought four to eight, four to twelve seems uh, a lot, and, and and I'll tell you, the SEC finally agreed to this because I think the SEC's thinking we're going to get four or five yeah, of the teams. Yeah, the teams, <laughs> yeah, it's fine. We'll have twelve. I mean, since 2014, um, the Big Ten would have got 20 teams in, the SEC 19, ACC 12, Big 12 11, Pac 12 11. So you're still going to get that, and then. Remember what I said about the conference champions? Well, Notre Dame's athletic director said Notre Dame could never host, uh, never could be in the first four because they would win a conference championship. They have agreed to do that for not having a conference champion game. So Notre Dame would never, could be in the, if they're ranked in the top 12, but they could never be a top four seed, which the whole thing is, is weird about that. So uh, are you in favor of this? I mean, I, I, I always like more sports, but we've seen over the, over the past half a decade that, the, the number four seed can't even keep up with the number one seed. I, what is Coastal Carolina, who would have been the number 12 seed last year, going to do against any of the premier teams? Like, to me, it's almost, I, I don't want to see playoff games that are 55 to 10. I don't want to see playoff games. I just think that the regular season college football is the best. 
it's the best. It's it's tremendous. And I think I just feel like I don't I I don't know why they're messing with it. And I'm someone who said we should definitely have a, a four to eight team uh, tournament. I thought that was that was the best. I've always pushed for it. But I think four is fine. I'm happy with it. I would not want to change. I mean, Ira of ten years ago was a crazy idea. Yeah. You know, definitely go to twelve. You know, more the merrier. But I just love every week the games matter. I don't want to turn it into the NBA. Like to me, I think all these other things like regular season games should matter. And as someone who's a big fan of Penn State who keeps you know missing out, they've never been a playoff, but it's their own fault. They lose games that like I they, it gives more importance to their games. And 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 I I'm not sitting here and saying Penn State, any of these last years since whatever, two thousand and fourteen, none of the Penn State teams would have won the national championship. They didn't deserve it. So they didn't again win your regular season games and then maybe think about playing for a championship. But no, I think you're right. And I think you're gonna start seeing some absolute blowouts in some of these games. And I and I just it's I I'm I'm against it. And I'm having teams also, college teams players playing sixteen, seventeen games with the college football championships. I think it weakens the regular season when when I think every game matters. Like every Saturday to me is like what's the big games and what should we watch and, and this is it and if they lose this they're out. Like I like that. That to me the whole season is the playoff. I, I I'm I'm against the idea, but it, it looks like they're gonna go to twelve teams. No, that's a really good point. Like you could see if Alabama's a preseason number one they could lose two games and still be the 10 seed. And you know what Alabama is going to do when they get in. It'll take, it always takes me back to the, the Boston Celtics after winning with their, their big three, finished eighth and then won, won again. Like, so that, yeah, you're right. Like when you see that Alabama Clemson game, you know, the winner of that game is probably going in and the loser might not make the playoff. So it's just so much more now that both of those teams are getting in regardless. So we'll see how this goes. But yeah, at, at the state of the league right now, I'm, I don't think it's a, such a great idea. Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. Uh, let's talk a little French Open because this has been a, a pretty, pretty incredible run. It was well. First of all, it was a disaster. The French Open is crazy. They're nuts. They, Nadal and Djokovic should have met in the finals. It is the dumbest idea of ever they ever did. But Nadal with 13 titles, um, 105 and two. Djokovic has only one title. Um, Djokovic beat Nadal uh, before. And the one time, one of the losses Joker and Nadal had was to Djokovic, and then he lost the title to Rinka. But this was a four-hour, eleven-minute match, three six six three seven six six two. The third set of seven six that Joker won, um, people are considering is the best set in the history of tennis in terms of how close it was and how exciting it was. Um, they played 2012 in Australian Open when Joker won in five sets in five hours. And in 2013, the semifinals of the French, Nadal won in five sets, nine seven in the fifth. And Wimbledon, they the Joker won in the semifinals, ten eight in the fifth. So they've had these five set matches. But like during this entire match, people were saying, "Why this is the greatest tennis I've seen?" Because Nadal was playing at a level that you've never like as maybe the greatest level of his life. But Joker was playing at that same level, at this superhuman level, hitting shot after shot, amazing shots, using depth, everything. Um, and uh, I mean, Nadal started the the match up to five nothing, and then he had won. That had been fourteen straight games since the semifinals. Like he beat Schwartzman, and then he gave up three games, made it five three, ended up winning that set six three, and then. Djokovic came back and won the second set 6-3, setting up that third set. Uh, and the third set, Joker was up 5-3. And you're like, okay, he's going to go up two sets to one. Dell comes back, takes a 6-5 lead, and then they go to a tiebreaker at 6-6. 
And in the tiebreaker at 3-4, Nadal missed this easy volley, like one of the probably the easiest shots he had the whole match. And he talked about it in the press conference, like that volley cost me an entire match, one point, and he lost 7-4 in the tiebreaker. And then you're waiting in the fourth set, you know, he took a 2-0 lead, Nadal did, and then he just couldn't hold on, and, and, and it was over like 6-2. But it was just one of those things where – he was defining the quality of play was so good. Now Nadal has 20 wins, uh, uh, Grand Slams. Federer has 20. Djokovic has 19. But the fact that Djokovic beat Nadal at the French, when we're going to say who the goat is, this is the big thing because now Djokovic's going to be the favorite at Wimbledon, the favorite at the U.S. Open. He could have the Grand Slam by the end of the year. 21 majors. I mean, you're looking at Djokovic clearly defining himself as putting and saying, no, I'm not ready to say he's the GOAT because I think Nadal could still beat him. I mean, Nadal and Federer, the Federer could win at Wimbledon. Nadal could win at the U.S. Open. We don't know yet. So, but right now it's looking like Djokovic is playing fantastic. And then the weird thing is it's almost like when the USA beat uh, USSR in the semifinals, had to play Finland (laughs) for the the gold medal. Then Djokovic had to go on and uh, beat Tsitsipas the 22-year-old Greek in the finals. And I think it was like this sort of this little hangover from that, from the, uh, the doll match, because um, it was like Tsitsipas had a set point in the first set, lost it, thought Djokovic then was going to win. They ended up losing that, the tiebreaker. Uh, and then he lost the second set and got easily 6-2. So Djokovic's now down 7-6, 6-2. And I'm like, I've seen Djokovic come back. I've seen Tsitsipas blow matches. And I've seen Djokovic, if any player that has this mental toughness to be down two sets to none is Djokovic, and he comes back and he breaks to three. One wins at six three. Won the second, the other set six two, and then in the fifth set was able to hang on and uh, and win six four in, in the uh, in the fifth set uh, for for a win uh, for his nineteenth uh, title. But uh, Tsitsipas is great. I mean, I, I've been saying. I think he's the next player. He seems to have the all-court game. We saw him in Miami play terrible. But the point is, it was, to me, Djokovic, the, the play that he had those final three sets against Tsitsipas and the play against Nadal, uh, tennis has never been played better. He's playing at a level that no one can play. He hits shots at no one. He doesn't make mistakes. He hits winners. He's smart. He knows how to vary the speeds. of. He is like DeGrom pitching. I mean, he, oh, he, every shot he hits is with a different speed, every different direction. He moves the ball around. Uh, and his movement on the court. He covers everywhere. You can't get a ball past him. So he has all the power on his ground strokes, and, but he also has um, the ability to get around the court. Just a great win for Djokovic. And, uh, and, and yes, a career-defining you know, GOAT-type debate win. And what's going on on the women's side? Was not as exciting. <laughs> <laughs> to uh, the uh, Barbara uh, Krajoka, um, uh, beat Anastasia Pavlozhenko, and uh, Barbara was is a 25 year old Czech. She was 125. How about these odds? Barbara was 125 one to win the title, and Anastasia was 250 to one. <laughs> so you had a, a 125 one to 250 one uh, to win, and it was it was one of those things where, where Barbara ended up winning it. Uh, but it was like all the top seeds. I mean, uh, the Anastasia was not seeded. Barbara was seeded 31. So 30 of the top seeds didn't even make the finals. Uh, but it was like one of those matches where Barbara is, she won the doubles title too. She's been the number one ranked doubles player. And typically, you're a doubles player, singles player, but she's used that doubles uh, experience to really help her in tennis. And uh, so that to win both the doubles and singles, that's what they used to. Martina Navratilova used to win that too. But, uh, uh, but that was like... 
again, the women's had no juice considering what's going on in the men's. And we're waiting for some of these women to step up, the younger, to get some sort of uh, consistency and just not seeing that. I mean, number one seeds, number two seeds, three seeds are losing early in these tournaments. The parity in women's game is nothing like what's in the men's game. So, Ira, we've got uh, just a few minutes left here. Uh, let's go to golf. And we're staring down the U.S. Open, and that's probably why the field wasn't amazing for the uh, Palmetto. But a guy I'd never heard of one, Garrett Kago. Dustin Johnson had a shot there on Sunday but wasn't able to put it together. Yeah, I mean, that was – it's one – Kepka missed the cut. Johnson made it and, was, and, and hung Besides that, of the top 50 golfers in the world, very few were in this tournament. It used to be the Canadian Open. But it was weird that – I mean, I think Dustin Johnson being from South Carolina felt like he needed to play with it. Brooks probably – Brooks sometimes likes to play right before a major decided he wanted to get some work in. But now they're setting up for Torrey Pines this week, and I am just so pumped for this. When people remember the last time, that's when Tiger beat Rocco Mediate in the Monday finish. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I'm, this is going to be a great, I mean, we got Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the U S open at Torrey Pines in San Diego. And we, you know, we were talking off air. There's some money to be made here. There's no, I mean, there's never a clear cut favorite in golf when Tiger is not in his prime, but there's a lot of very good golfers. You can get a price on. Well, Rom is 10 to 1, which I was surprising. John Rom, who with COVID, was leading the last tournament. I, I can't believe he's such a heavy favorite in this. But Bryson's 14 to 1. Dustin Johnson, 14 to 1. Shoffley, who we saw in the Masters, do so well, and everyone's waiting for him to win his first major. 14 to 1. Kepka, who I, I'd say Kepka, I, I'm done. I'm done doubting his ability in major. I don't care he didn't make the cut in the Palmetto Open. I'm going with Kepka to win. 18 to 1. Those are great odds. Speef is 18 to 1. Canelay is 18 to 1. I mean, it's like Rory's 20 to 1. Like, just, it, how about Justin Thomas? 22 to 1. Morikawa, 25 to 1. Matsiano, who won the, uh, you know, who won the Masters, 40 to 1. Uh, and Phil is 66 to 1. <laughs> and Berger's <laughs> even 50 to 1. Like, there's so many great odds in this, in this to win. And, and just shows you, in terms of golf, where these golfers are. And also the inability. We're waiting for Dustin Johnson to fire. Like, last year, at, he seemed to be playing super golf and at the end and was playing great. It doesn't seem like anyone is really playing up these top golfers. They're having good weeks and bad weeks, and you're trying to figure out like who's going to have a good week. Um, last year, Bryson at Whistling Strikes six, had a six-shot win. Uh, 2019, I was there at uh, Pebble Beach. Woodland won three-ever Kepka, and Brooks won then at Shinnecock. I was there in 2018, and then Brooks won the year before at Aaron Hills, and Dustin Johnson won three-ever Fjord in 2016 at Oakmont, and I was there. But I'll be watching basketball this week, not the uh, not the golf, but uh, but I, I, it'll look. I'm, I'm pumped for this entire uh, for this uh, for the tournament. Let's talk a little UFC because it ended up being a fun weekend. Um, what matches? So Israel Adesanya was against Mari Vittori, and it was like one of those matches where Vittori, during even the uh, the press conferences, was going crazy, and they they had him removed. They're like, he's going to hurt somebody, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, and Adesai was coming off a loss to Blanco Chip when he was going up to light heavyweight, but he dominated this, completely showed everyone that he's the best. He won 50, and all the cards uh, five rounds to zero, uh, dominating this fight against a number three ranked contender, and just showed that everyone he's by far the best middleweight. And then, uh, but the big upset was Brandon Marino. Uh, from Mexico, became the first flyweight, uh, f- first titleist from Mexico, uh, won by submission in the third round, took the title from Figueroa. Uh, Don Marino dominated the whole fight, and uh, they had fought before uh, to a draw. So this was one where they didn't really think Marino really was going to step up and do it. But the fight of the night was Nate, Nate Diaz versus Leon Edwards. Uh, Leon Edwards for four rounds 
was destroying Nate Diaz. I mean, Diaz is, is, is bloody, and he's like lost four of his last five fights. But in the fifth round, Diaz totally turned the tide. And if it would have gone on another minute, he would have won the fight. Uh, and so Dana White's like, I don't know what to do with Diaz. He just keeps losing, but everyone loves him. And he, and he fights so, <laughs> his fights are so entertaining and so great, and he fights so hard. But uh, it was a great card. Um, I thought it was good to have two championship fights and have the Diaz fight. It was pretty good for the OC. And let's wrap it up with uh, auto racing. Well, Kyle Larson, they just had, in Texas, they have like an all-star. It's a non-points race. But now Kyle Larson has won. Last year, he was suspended for six months. Uh, uh, six months, he was uh, given a suspension. And, but he's now won three races in a row. He's domi- and dominated again in this race. He's won road courses and ovals uh, for Hendrick Motorsports and setting up for uh, It's weird they do this, this all-star. It used to be in Charlotte. They did in Texas this year where it's sort of, they call it all-star, but it really is they race the same people the same week anyway. But then it was, it's a non-points race or like a week off in terms of the, the but Kyle Larson is, is looking like the, uh, this, is gonna, this is his title to lose this year in NASCAR. So, Ira, you mentioned it before, but once again, where are you headed this week? Well, Tuesday, Brooklyn, uh, going to see game a game five. And we don't know until the, the Sixers just tipped off. So I don't know if that series is going to be 2-1. It's either going to be 3-1 Sixers against the Hawks or 2-2. Maybe get the chance to see two game fives as back-to-back nights. But uh, now this, I'll tell you what, if you can only watch one basketball game this, this week, you've got to watch Tuesday night, um, 8.30, night, 8.30 at uh, the Brooklyn-Milwaukee game because this is going to be great. I mean, you're going to see Kevin Durant with uh, the world on his shoulders trying to win this game, and you're going to see Giannis. I mean, there's a lot to prove. Kevin has a lot to prove in terms of can he carry a team by himself without Curry, whatever, and you're going to have Giannis try to prove the same thing. And, and I'm, I'm really pumped for this game. I think it's going to be – I expect a really great, like, memorable game. We are out of time. Thanks so much to Jake Fisher for, for stopping by. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on Sports.